Her temperature was 107, and it kept on rising. It was 6 p.m., and I had spent the whole day trying to keep this patient alive. When her blood pressure dropped, our colleagues in anesthesia placed a central line for the pressors that we poured in. When her heart rate shot up and her EKG looked concerning, the cardiology fellows looked at her heart with an ultrasound and talked us through the next steps. Then her nurse was the one who noticed that the patient felt warm to touch, took her temperature, notified us of her wildly erratic vitals, all signs that she was descending into a cytokine storm. My interns, one of whom had joined our ranks from Obigine, immediately helped rally a crew of people to cover her in cooling blankets, to hunt down an ice bath, to push medications to bring her vital signs back to normal. And eight sets of hands worked in a flurry, packing her in bag after bag of ice, all hands to turn her, to guard her lines and tubes. And we watched with desperate eyes as her temperature climbed and climbed, and then finally peaked at 108.8 before it broke, and she defervesced. COVID has brought us sickness and fear and situations I never thought I could see. But more remarkable, I think, than a temperature of 108 is the way this team of strangers came together. We have nurses and PAs and doctors who have traveled from around the country to be here, to come to help a city that has been brought to its knees by this pandemic. I have handled emergencies alongside people I've never met before. I've cried with nurses who don't know what I look like without a mask. And this is all in a time of profound isolation, a time when my patients can't have visitors, when I can't see my friends or family, a time when we all have to keep those we love at arm's length. This is an impossible time. And there are so many conflicting sentiments, courage and fear and excitement and sorrow. But what I keep coming back to is this one strange paradox, the ways this pandemic has brought us together and how it pushes us apart. Welcome to a special episode of At the Bedside. We spoke to clinicians from across the country, and as Margot just described, we heard over and over how this pandemic has disconnected us from our families, from our patients, from each other. And yet, in different ways, this time has also brought a new sense of connection. You'll hear many voices, some of them new and some familiar ones, such as hosts of other Quarium segments. Some are internists, subspecialists, or anesthesiologists who are now working as critical care clinicians. Michael Shen, who usually creates the beautiful graphics for our episodes, masterfully mixed all the raw interviews, and joins us today. He and Jaffer will help unpack some of the layers of disconnection and connection we heard about. Hey, it's Michael Shen. Over the past few weeks, I've been working on the wards in Manhattan. And at night, when I come home and listen to these interviews, I find that I'm not alone in feeling a deep sense of disconnection from my patients. I've always taken pride in my 22-inch stethoscope, which is shorter than everybody else's, and I can hear everything that nobody can hear, but I became, you know, very thoughtful about that. Maybe I need to go find my old stethoscope and not get so close. What is it like to be in a room and one time a day to hear a knock at the door and then watch two people dressed in goggles? that are fogged, so you can't see their eyes, uh, full masks, two pairs of gloves, <laughs> like they're, you know, they're people from Mars, um, spend three, four minutes with you because they've got, you know, 20 other people to see, but you don't know that. Um, I, I, I kind of found myself trying to ask patients questions about things that, like unrelated to why they were in the hospital, um, but still feeling this need to get out of their room. They don't sit, they don't get near you, they don't touch you. 
they don't do an exam, and then they leave, and you feel like shit. And uh, it's it's scary. It, I I think it reminds me again how little I think I actually understand what it's like to be a patient. I just felt distracted and disconnected from my patients, and I and I was very sad about that. I think the more and more shaming thing that you have trouble remembering. I think for me, talking to them about their families, ironically, half the time we're looking for sick contacts, but on the other hand, like talking to them about their families is literally the only thing that I can remember that's different between folks because the way they present in terms of the way they describe their symptoms sometimes gets so common. It, it kind of emphasizes this, this new barrier that I haven't really felt before. You know, there's just this loneliness that I think that is happening on both sides for the patient because they can't have any visitors, for us because we feel like we have to be responsible and just get down to business. It's incredibly challenging. I think for me that's one of the most challenging things about this. If you ask me, what do I think is the thing that probably made the most difference in the broad perspective? I don't think it's any of my decisions about who gets started and what treatment. I think it's about the conversations that I've had with folks. You know, to reassure the ones that are well and to prepare the ones that are going to get sick or that are, that ended up getting sick. You know, who's your healthcare proxy? What would you want, you know, in this scenario, et cetera, et cetera. So much of the current national drama has focused on the front lines. But a lot of what we heard when we were talking to people had more to do with what happens when we leave the front lines and go home to our friends and family. Or to be more specific, what parts of the front lines come home with us? We expose ourselves, our bodies, but then we take these bodies back around those we love, this menacing fear of contagion following us. Even the simple act of touch has been transformed into something both dangerous and treasured, condemned, but still mourned. I think we're all scared of spreading it to people we love because that feels like something that we're responsible for, even if it is the virus that causes it. One of the most difficult things for me so far has been not touching and hugging um, and kissing my my family the way that I normally would. Knowing full well that I could become sick and have to quarantine myself from my family, I've started at nighttime um, holding my daughters in, in bed, just knowing that there may, there may be a time and it may be very soon where I'm not gonna be able to do that at all. There is something lost in people not being able to touch each other in the same way. And I'm not even talking about, you know, the intimate things that people think about between partners. I'm, I'm thinking just about um, wrapping my arms around my son while we watch TV, or um, hearing about his day, um, you know, nose to nose, you know, in the bed before he goes to sleep and stuff like that. Um, that has been very, very difficult for me. I'd like to think as a doctor, I'm gonna help the person I see. But with COVID, there's this invisible air of contagion that just follows me wherever I go. So the next person I see, am I gonna hurt them or help them? My wife and I dealt with this firsthand. The first inkling that things were going to change pretty quickly was uh, when my nanny, who's Italian, um, her parents are still in Italy, quit 
uh, without much notice. She obviously um, acknowledges that both my husband and I are physicians and that we are, uh, as healthcare workers, at extremely high risk. She just said, look, I, I just, I don't feel safe. Um, being here, her boyfriend's immunocompromised. She obviously had heard from her parents who had been quarantined in Italy uh, how bad this could get. Now, on the flip side, what was what, beautiful about it is that my husband, who I normally enjoy talking to a lot anyway, we just have much deeper conversations. We are, I, I feel like I know a lot more about what he does at work and he knows a lot more about what I do at work. I have um, grandparents in another country and I've, uh, in the last week and a half, you know, I've called them four times. My mom moved out here to Los Angeles several weeks before this pandemic became a reality for all of us. So the second my nanny quit with no notice, I told my mom that she, you know, it's time to step up, you know, and now I talk to her every single day. I see her most days. Yeah, I've lived apart from her for 20 years of my life, and all of a sudden, she's a critical part of it. Even while we're finding this new connection with friends and family, we're also disconnected from a part of ourselves that's used to security. I lost all that mental security that comes from feeling competent in a situation, confident about the future, and comfortable in my routines and schedules. But more than that, I felt disconnected from my physical security, genuinely questioning if I'll survive this pandemic. I definitely had a moment where this became very real. Not all the patients are elderly. I mean, there are patients who are my age or younger. You accept a certain level of risk that comes with the profession, but typically like that level of risk, I think is met with like good preparation. But with COVID, I think like we know so little about it. It's so hard to tell if people are symptomatic or not. It's been about kind of trying to confront and understand those fears. So that way they don't just kind of sit in the back of your brain unacknowledged. I think it's important to kind of when you're home, take a mental inventory of that fear, even if it doesn't make any sense, to allow that to kind of surface so that way you can actually address it because there is a huge emotional pull with taking care of this disease that I have not seen before. There's a higher rate of burnout that I haven't seen before. And I think this disease more than anything really forces us to relinquish some of the things that we used to pretend we could control. It always to me seemed like kind of a far away discussion, like a total hypothetical, but you know, seeing this actually happen in front of me really made me realize like I have to make this concrete and I have to make this workable not you know someday but actually now I mean we just had the conversations we haven't had before like who who is going to care for our, our two infant daughters if something happens to both of us we hadn't had that discussion before it was hard to talk about but we got it into writing we both filled out advanced directives and talked about what it would mean to be stripped of our health be stripped of our dignity. We talked about life support, feeding tubes, brain injury, and what it would mean to live without each other. I had my mother-in-law act as a witness, and with no one else around, I had to bring it to one of my attendings to be a second witness. Both signed it. Neither said a word about it. While we wrestle with all the uncertainty, disconnected from the security that we're so used to, one thing that surfaced over and over again is how we're connected in ways we haven't been before. 
there's a new kind of shared ethos. We have, in a sense, found anchors in each other. Almost existentially, you do feel more connected with uh, the rest of the world. Just connection, not only with everyone else around the world who right now is kind of suffering in similar ways, but also the people who uh, in the past have, have suffered. It makes me think about the people who survived World War II, and that was very different and much more terrible in a lot of ways, but... It just makes me feel a connection with the the many, many human beings who have had to suffer these kinds of uh, challenging times and scary times, which is oddly comforting. The emotional burden of this hits us all. Now more than ever, it's important to recognize and empathize with people around you. It's not possible for a clinician to be effective in isolation. The past week has made me so acutely aware of how dependent my work is on the system. Just like basic things, like going to see a patient and, you know, is there going to be PPE there, you know, and has someone put them on the appropriate precautions? I've never been so acutely aware of how many other people are necessary for me to do my job. My idealization of the, of the clinician as a sort of 19th century romantic independent soul taking care of people has just really crashed. I, I think I have newfound respect for the integrity of systems and the people who, who manage them. I think one of the most positive things that I've seen is just the adaptability of people to reorganize ourselves, to work together, to answer the call. Important part of feeling fulfilled in your job is feeling like the work you're doing is meaningful, that it counts in some way. And quite frankly, when you do work like that, it doesn't matter if it's tiring, if it carries some amount of risk, um, certainly makes me feel like I'm part of something bigger. Interestingly, in the, the healthcare role, we still get we get to maintain a little bit of a sense of normalcy in a way that other people can't, which is weird to say because nothing really feels normal right now. But I still get up in the morning at the same time. I come into work. Um, I see the same colleagues, which is a privilege I think that a lot of people don't have. So in that sense, there is still tangible connection. Well, I do have two colleagues in the anesthesia who are also, you know, young women who are at the beginning of our careers, and we've kind of banded together in in the midst of all of this, both to information share, but it's also definitely sprinkled with a lot of gallows humor <laughs> and having people to either just laugh at the ridiculousness of it all or just laugh at how crazy our lives are right now um, has been definitely a, a light in all of this. And, and I, you know, I was actually thinking the other day how on the other side of this pandemic, when we eventually get there, um, how much of a bonding experience this really is. I'd always just heard about when something traumatic happens that people have post-traumatic stress disorder, that something traumatic happens and what you can expect is um, for it to disrupt your ability to do anything and for it to set you back. I hadn't really ever heard of this idea of post-traumatic growth. Um, we've all, if we sit and close our eyes and think about people, um, famous people, not famous people, people we know who've had something happen that you think like, that should have taken them out. That should have been the end for them, but yet they 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 kept going and not just going. They 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 somehow emerged out of it better, stronger, more able, um, more agile. I mean, um, 
I want to believe that um, healthcare and healthcare providers and medical educators will come out of this with a post-traumatic growth. And I don't know if that's really like a, a an official term or anything, but I do think it's real. And I have found some solace in, in that idea. Um, and yes, our mental health professionals will be ready and willing to support our, um, our post-traumatic stress, but also to fan the flame of our post-traumatic growth, because I think that that is something that can happen and will happen if we look for it. We've been in this for more than a month now, which is long enough to know how hard this pandemic will be to overcome, but not long enough to know how much longer we'll have to keep this pace up. I haven't seen anyone but my coworkers and my partner in what feels like forever, And it seems kind of selfish to say this when there are problems so much bigger than me, but I miss being close to people, being close to my patients. But despite what we're going through, hectic hospital, airways being called overhead every half hour, the deaths, the disruption of our lives outside the hospital, despite all that, there is still a palpable atmosphere of hope. We're starting to see signs that this pandemic might not be as bad as it could have been. We haven't run out of ventilators, haven't been matching the worst-case scenarios that we've been running in our heads. And that's because of the way people came together. People got together to find us the masks and PPE we needed to care for our patients safely. Hospitals that had empty beds are opening them to hospitals that have become overwhelmed. People stayed home, and we're starting to see the cases level off. We're starting to see the flattening of the curve that we were all so desperately hoping for. This pandemic has taught me a lot. It's still teaching me every day, but one of the most enduring lessons has been seeing just how interconnected we are. We're connected to each other in the hospital, to the people who lean out their windows and applaud at 7 p.m. every night, to the country as a whole and the international community, all connected through this shared struggle. And yet we can't come close to each other in the ways that we used to, because connecting in that way could spread this disease further. And our systems, so reliant on a physical proximity that I had taken for granted, have started to fall apart in this time of social distancing. The fracture lines are running through our restaurants, our schools, our farms, our country, all of the international supply chains that we rely on. Our interconnectedness can bring us together. Our interconnectedness can bring us harm. And it's left me with a question, which I want to leave with you. Where do we go from here? At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 